Fred Ricciani, TSC, here to talk some baseball with our good friend Jim Griffin. He is an expert on the New York Yankees, a longtime baseball writer. It's Hall of Fame season. It's hot stove season. There's a lot going on. Sign stealing, major signings, who's going to make the cut to get enshrined. He is the author of the New York Yankees All-Stars, the best players at each position for the Bronx Bombers. You can get it via paperback and Kindle on Amazon. Jim, how's your baseball offseason treating you? Uh, just fine. It's cold, just like every other baseball offseason. But yeah, things are going good, and thanks for having me back. Yeah, pleasure to have you back on. Now, before we dive into the Hall of Fame and everything else going on, you are a massive Yankees fan. You are a self-proclaimed Yankees historian. You literally wrote the book on, on Yankees history and the greatest players at their positions. But I got to say, it's probably a, a bitter pill to swallow. Not only how their season ended, just from a baseball standpoint. Okay, they lost to the Astros. The Astros, on paper, might very well be the better team. But then afterwards, weeks later, finding out about all the sign stealing. Now, it's not just, you know, H.A. Hinch picked up a few signs and alerted you know the rest of his crew. But apparently, allegedly, the Astros utilized technology in order to steal signs and defeat the Yankees, and also a couple years ago, win the World Series. So, Jim, let's tackle that. As a Yankees fan, how are you feeling after you heard that story and are hearing about the investigation from MLB? Well, I can say that it's no surprise that soon after, the Red Sox got accused of the exact same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, of course, the guy who is the, uh, the bench coach for the, or I'm sorry, the manager of the Astros now, was a coach for the Red Sox, too. And um, so, yeah, no surprise there. When it comes to sign stealing, uh, you know, it's been going on for years and years and years since, you know, well before there was even cameras catching things in games. Um, As with anything, if you get caught, you know, that's when it becomes a problem. So uh, shame on them for doing it so obviously that they got caught. (laughs) And um, I don't think sign stealing is going to stop anytime soon. Like, how are you going to – I've heard things about um, they're going to have – a random number generator that pitchers and catchers can use on their wrists to prevent this kind of stuff. Uh, no matter what you do, I don't think you're going to prevent it. I mean, it's baseball. There's only so many pitches that a pitcher has. There's only so many ways you can throw it. And if you have a runner on second base, he's going to figure it out. It's, it's not rocket science. Um, just don't be stupid about it. So uh, shame on the Astros and Red Sox for being stupid about it. And, um, you know, for all the complaints about the Yankees and stuff, uh, it seems that they're playing pretty clean, so I'll take it. Yeah, and, and here's the thing, too. Like, look, all is fair in love, war, and baseball, right? But I feel like there's kind of a gentleman's agreement when you steal signs. Like, if you pick something up from the other team and, and you use it, that, that seems fine. I think the big issue with the Astros and with MLB's investigation is the Astros actually use technology. Yeah, and if you remember, and again, they use technology, and that's also going to get caught. You know, this is, we're in 2020 now. It's, um, <laughs> you're not going to sneak anything past anybody. And a good example of, you know, being so obvious that, you know, of course, somebody's going to slap you on the wrist. If you remember a few years back, uh, Michael Pineda was pitching for the Yankees, and it was a game against the Red Sox, and he so obviously had pine tar in his neck that he was using to uh, to get a better grip on the baseball. And I think the manager at the Red Sox at the time, uh, forget his name, it escapes me now, but he said, um, you know, I don't mind that the guy's doing it because everybody does it, especially – and during April games, when it's still a little bit cold outside, you want to get a better grip on the ball, use some pine tar, not a big deal. But when you do it so obviously, I, they got to say something. So, <laughs> um, yeah, just just be smarter and do it the old-fashioned way, you know. Use your runner on second base and have him scratch his head when he knows what pitch is coming, something like that. Yeah, yeah so. 
Well, speaking Shame of, on the Astros. <laughs> Shame on the Astros. And speaking of scratching your head, something had me scratching my head a little bit, my friend. Now, Rocco Baldelli won Manager of the Year in the American League this past season. He did a very good job with the Twins. But the New York Yankees had all these injuries. They, 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 were, they were ravaged throughout the season. Won 103 games. Made it all the way to the ALCS. And for whatever reason, if that wasn't good enough for Aaron Boone to win Manager of the Year. Can you explain that? I don't have a good explanation for it. Um, but yeah, I, I 100% agree with you that Boone, with basically no pitching staff, won 103 games, uh, used his bullpen masterfully, uh, did a great job. Think of guys like the biggest offseason signing for the Yankees was DJ LeMahieu, and they got laughed at for it. And Aaron Boone used DJ LeMahieu in every different position he can in the infield. By the playoffs, he was starting first baseman. Nobody saw that coming. And he had a case to be MVP. So I think Boone definitely pushed all the right buttons. Um, but when it comes to manager of the year and the way they decide that stuff, um, it's almost always going to be the team that was bad the year before and then has a big improvement the following year. So I guess we can chalk it up to the Yankees being too good the season before. And because, um, you know, they were a playoff team, and even though they got a first round exit against the Red Sox, um, they won over 90 games. That's still a pretty good season. 103 wins. It's an improvement, but it's, probably not as good as the Twins improvement, and it's almost always going to boil down to that. So doesn't make much sense because, you know, Boone probably should have lost more games than he did, probably should have won less than 90 games with that roster. But, um, you know, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, maybe next year if he wins the World Series, he'll he'll get his just due. But, uh, you know, cheers to Rocco Bodelli. I guess he did a pretty good job, but um, it's only because the Twins were bad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, I mean, get, getting Garrett Cole in free agency is not a bad consolation prize. Not at all. No, I'll take it. <laughs> and I'm guessing with Garrett Cole, you, you see them going back to ALCS and maybe the World Series? Yeah, it certainly makes them the favorite. Um, you know, Cole, Cole being in there, plus hopefully getting a more healthy rotation. Um, you know, Tanaka's been a really underrated, under-the-radar, great signing by the Yankees a bunch of years ago. Uh, he's still going strong, and um, that contract is actually looking pretty favorable these days. Um, but yeah, they're going to have a better rotation. Obviously they should have a healthier lineup, uh, with guys like Andujar coming back and even having a first base situation. That's maybe a little more stable. You know, they went into last year with Greg Bird banking on him to be their first baseman. Now they'll have a combination of Luke Voigt and Mike Ford who are, uh, you know, not necessarily superstars, but I think they're a, a pretty dependable platoon if they can use those guys. So I think, um, yeah, the Yankees are certainly looking to be in good shape. I wouldn't be surprised if they won over 100 games again this coming season. And uh, once you get into the playoffs, who knows? Anything can happen, so let's go Yanks. Anything can happen. And with the Hall of Fame, you never know either because there's a lot of people for the first time on the ballot, a number of dudes who have been waiting their turn for quite some time. Of course, you have the usual suspects from over the years who were perhaps linked to, to cheating and you know they haven't been voted in out of, out of principle, whatever, whatever that principle is. You have Roger Clemens, Barry Bonds, Manny Ramirez, Sammy Sosa. And then, of course, you have some major first-timers, most notably Derek Jeter. Also have uh, Raul Abanez, Cliff Lee, Josh Beckett, Bobby Abreu, Andrew Jones. Who on this ballot right here, besides the obvious Derek Jeter, has the most impressive resume for a first-time ballot. So the, the first-timers right now, it's it's really Derek Jeter and everybody else. 
I, I don't know if there's anybody else who's a first-timer this year who will ever make the Hall of Fame, but it doesn't mean that there's a bad crop of guys. I think it's uh, it's a really good list of guys who are just below the Hall of Fame cut, uh, namely Bobby Abreu was a really good player and underrated for pretty much his entire career. So uh, baseball historian Bill James, uh, you know, kind of the authority on all things baseball in the past, I don't know, 40 years or so. He, uh, he has a principle that he goes by that he's mentioned many times in his book that um, when it comes to baseball players, if they do one thing great, then they're going to be seen as great in the eyes of the public um, and probably overrated because of that. Um, guys who are just home run hitters, they tend to be overrated. Guys who steal a ton of bases but not do much else, they're still going to be overrated because fans see that and they think that's great. But guys who do a lot of things or almost everything really well, but nothing terribly eye-popping or great, tend to be extremely underrated. And that's right where Bobby Abreu fits in because he, he was a very good fielder. He was a great hitter for a lot of years. Um, extremely productive, extremely consistent, healthy, played a ton of games. Um, but he he does fall just short because he never had that superstar year and he was never quite a superstar in the league. He was, you know, always in that probably one of the top 20 players in the league, but never top five. And I think for that reason, he kind of slips under the radar and his resume does fall just a bit short. Um, but I'd say of all the other first timers, he probably has the best resume. Uh, Cliff Lee was also a great pitcher for a good five or six year sprint, but just didn't have the longevity. And, um, Jason Giambi, also a great hitter. Um, you know, steroid allegations are probably going to be the end of him when it comes to the Hall of Fame voting. This will probably be a one and done for him on the ballot. But, um, you know, in his day, he was also a great player. And I'll mention one more in Eric Chavez. Uh, also a really sneaky, really good player because he played in Oakland, uh, very extreme pitchers park. So his numbers didn't jump out at you. But for a good five-year period there in the early 2000s, he, um, you know, he was in the MVP conversation a couple times, and um, probably doesn't get the just due he deserves because of you know playing on the West Coast and in a, a pitcher's park. There was some controversy from some baseball writers, and not to diss any of your peers, and I, I'm not going to name names. Frankly, I can't even name their names. But there was some controversy. You probably saw it where. A few writers took it upon themselves to say, you know what? No, we want to keep the hall small. You know, the only guy we're voting for this year is Derek Jeter, which kind of seems a little preposterous to me, considering if you have enough qualified candidates, you have enough votes, like, why, why leave some other people out? What do you think about the theory of keeping the hall small? Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? <laughs> um, I, I definitely agree with that sentiment. Uh, small hall, I guess it's nice. Uh, it's a nice thought, but uh, the Hall of Fame is going on, what, 80 years old now? Something like that? There's a lot of great um, players, was, man. Right, right. If it was going to be a small hall, they probably should have decided that 80 years ago. Um, at this point, it's a big hall. There's over 300 Hall of Famers. Um, are there some guys in there that probably don't deserve it? Sure. But I think I'd rather err on that side and um, maybe maybe over-include some players and and make sure you get all the, the really great ones in there than have you know just 10 guys. Like, what if you go to Cooperstown and you see the same 10 guys on the wall? Every time you go there, uh, that's pretty boring. And also, we wouldn't be able to argue about stuff like this because, you know, every winter we get to debate all these Hall of Famers and whether they're worthy or not. I think it's a great forum to to make arguments. You know, a bigger hall, we get to tell the story about more players because there really are some great stories with these baseball players. Even if they weren't, you know, absolute superstars in their day, 
guy like Bobby Abreu, even though he may, may not be a Hall of Famer, to debate his case and say, you know what, he comes really close to the line of being a Hall of Famer. I think that's um, that only makes makes things better for baseball, better for baseball fans, and that's what it's part of what makes the game fun. So yeah, let's have a nice big hall and let's argue about it. You know? There we go. I, I, now, now I definitely dig that. You're somebody that's definitely into analytics based on our, our last interview and, and everything else and analyzing the game. One guy who really benefited from analytics over time and eventually got into the hall, Mike Messina, which is, I think, a, a cool surprise. I, I believe they used sabermetrics to kind of break down like his real impact on, on, on teams that he was on, and it ended up he ended up being compared very favorably to other Hall of Famers. I know you haven't had a chance to crunch all the numbers, but is there somebody that's been on the ballot, maybe off the ballot, going to come on the ballot down the road, that you could see that's under the radar, kind of like Mike Messina, that sneaks up on us, that based on analytics and all the technology we have now, actually has a stronger case for a Hall of Fame than when they were actually on the field? Yeah, so there's a guy on the ballot right now in Scott Rowland, who um, in his day also wasn't like a terribly, the public didn't think he was great, or uh, I guess in the eyes, especially during his career in Philadelphia, um, he got a whole lot of flack, especially from his own manager, Larry Boa. Just, I guess they, they didn't see eye to eye. But I think that kind of tarnished his reputation. He was kind of a quiet guy, but he took himself real seriously. Uh, he was a truly great player, but he doesn't really get the recognition for that. And this is his third year on the ballot. Um, he first came on the ballot with a pretty lukewarm reception. He was down around, I think, 20% or so. Last year, he got a nice bump. bump. And even this year, of all the public ballots that, are, uh, that have been released, he's on 50% of them. So it seems like he's making nice progress. And I think that we can owe a lot of that to advanced analytics because in, for his day, for his time, he was one of the best fielding, best fielders in, in general in baseball. But also as far as a third baseman, he's probably top five all time as far as uh, being a great fielder. And on top of that, he was no slouch as a hitter. He didn't have really high batting averages, but um, he had good plate discipline. He drew a ton of walks. He didn't strike out a whole lot. He had decent power. He would give you 20 to 30 home runs every year. And then towards the end of his career, or at least uh, after his time with the Phillies, uh, playing for the Cardinals, he got to play for some playoff teams and even won a World Series there. And he bounced around a little bit towards the end of his career, but he was also part of some successful Reds teams, some of the only successful Red teams that have been in on the past, I don't know, since they won the World Series in 1990. And I think he was a big part of that. He was a veteran leader. He was uh, still a productive player. Again, a great fielder. And... Um, I think now in hindsight, now that people are able to crunch the numbers, they see what a great player Scott Rowland really was. And I think, you know, if we look four years down the road or so, we might see him in Cooperstown. I think that's a great thing. That's a that's a win for analytics. If you were the one that could ultimately decide who goes in this year, who would you pick? Well, Derek Jeter's a slam dunk. Um, I think that's obvious. The only question about Derek Jeter is whether he's going to be unanimous like Mariana Rivera was last year. Uh, so far, so good. He's on every ballot that's been released so far. Um, so I'm going to eliminate Derek Jeter from, from the conversation. Cause I think that's obvious aside from Derek Jeter, the guy who absolutely should have been on probably 10 years ago. And this is his last year of eligibility is Larry Walker. Uh, Larry, uh, everything I said about Bobby Abreu earlier applies to Larry Walker, except he was better than Bobby Abreu at everything. Larry Walker was a great fielder, um, especially as a right fielder, one of the best right fielders you'll ever see as far as being in the outfield. A great, great hitter. Uh, he doesn't get a lot of credit for that because he played in Colorado, and people just assume that his numbers looked good because he played in Colorado. 
But playing in Montreal, he was also a great hitter. Playing in St. Louis, he was also a great hitter. So yeah, sure, his numbers looked better because he did play in Colorado. But um, even if you adjust them because of the park factor, uh, Larry Walker was a truly great hitter. And he was also a great base runner. He didn't steal a ton of bases, but when it comes to base running, the advanced analytics also paint the picture that he was, you know, in the top 100 all time as far as base runners. So I think Larry Walker is an absolute Hall of Famer. It seems like this might finally be the year that he's going to make it, and I think that is also a huge win, um, you know, for for baseball in general. But uh, Larry Walker is also a really interesting case because he has a great story. As a, as a Canadian, he grew up being a hockey fan, and he knew next to nothing about baseball. I, I've read things that when he was in the minor leagues, he didn't even know the rules. Like he ran from third base straight to first base when there was a, a fly ball. Cause he didn't understand that he had to go back to second if he ran over that base. Um, so yeah, he's a Canadian hockey player who decided that baseball was his best shot at having a successful career. Uh, he played baseball the way he played hockey. He was rough and tumble in the outfield. He would run into walls and not care. And, um, at the end of the day, he was an all-time great baseball player, and I think he'll finally get recognized for that this year, and rightfully so. Steroid era, guys. Do you see any of them finally getting in, a guy like Barry Bonds, for example? Yeah, so I think you can't talk about Bonds without Clemens, too. I think they're two peas in a pod. Um, I do think they will get in, and actually, as far as the ballots are tracking right now, they're both over the 75% threshold. That'll probably change because the, the ballots that aren't publicly released tend to be guys who are old school and would certainly penalize them for steroid use, but both of them have a couple more years of eligibility, and I do think they'll creep over that 75% threshold. And I'll make, I'll just address the elephant in the room when it comes to steroid use and if they belong in the Hall of Fame or not. I do think that, especially guys who are no doubt about it, superstars like Bonds and Clemens, you can make the case that Bonds is probably a top three position player all time. You can make the case that Clemens is a top three pitcher of all time. They absolutely belong in the Hall of Fame. And when it comes to steroid use, I think you could make the argument that they did those steroids um, and they did it to gain a competitive advantage. Would you agree with that, that it was a competitive advantage? Thing yeah, and I think also to kind of prolong their, their careers. I mean, even about, I mean, we talked about this last time we spoke, even before they quote-unquote started using steroids, I mean, they were already all on their way to Hall of Fame careers, right? Absolutely. And when it comes to the competitive advantage issue, there are a ton of guys in the Hall of Fame right now who – did much more egregious things to directly suppress players to gain a competitive advantage for themselves. One guy comes to mind is Cap Anson. Uh, he's a guy who started his baseball career in the 19th century. He was baseball's first real superstar. And not only did Cap Anson willingly and willfully make sure that African-American players didn't play in baseball while he was playing, he actually planted the seed of the idea that baseball should be racially segregated. And he directly suppressed those players by, you know, as the biggest superstar in baseball, if he was playing against a team that had a black player in that team, he said, I refuse to play. And that would drive down ticket sales. That would drive down, you know, publicity for baseball, stop, stop the game from growing. So he did far more to set baseball back than Bonds and Clemens ever did. Yet he's got a plaque in the hall of fame. He's been celebrated for over a hundred years as an all-time great baseball player. So if that's the case, why do we not let Bonds and Clemens into the Hall of Fame? I mean, you can't tell the story of baseball without them, so get them in there. How do you see 2020 shaking out in MLB? Well, I think it's going to be a repeat of 2019 in that the American League is pretty top-heavy. You know, Yankees, Astros, Red Sox, they're always there. Uh, in the National League, it's kind of a crapshoot, especially over the past couple of years, and I think that is the case. 
I mean, who saw the Nationals winning the World Series this year, you know? Um, but I think some of the teams, like the Phillies come to mind, um, they were they made a, a bunch of splashy moves last year. Didn't really work out for them. Um, they got rid of their manager and Gabe Kapler. They brought in Joe Girardi, a guy who I'm very familiar with, and I think that was an excellent hire for the Phillies because I think he'll work out well in that town. I think the Phillies could make some noise in 2020, but, you know, we'll see. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, a top-heavy American League, kind of a mixed bag in the National League, and I know better than to try and predict baseball playoffs anymore. It's, <laughs> <laughs> we'll just see how it shakes out and have some fun watching it. Is there any Yankees player we should be on the lookout for, one that is under the radar that you think will surprise us? I did mention before that Miguel Andujar is coming back this year. He had a great rookie year, and if he can build on that, that might be a guy who's kind of forgotten now because he was he missed him basically the entire season last year. And another guy who he's not terribly under the radar, but if he can finally get healthy and maybe hold up over a full season, Gary Sanchez had that amazing rookie year, and um, he's he's been good but not great because he's had some injury problems over the past couple of years. If he could ever play a full season, I could see him hitting 40-plus home runs and you know being in an MVP conversation. Well, you know what? Actually, this yeah. is another—I mean, not the Yankees, but the New York Mets, they didn't make yeah. the playoffs, but they were a fun team last year. I mean, they were, really, they were a really fun team, and they, they, al- they almost made the cut uh, in the playoffs. I think if they could you know, continue that, that development, I mean, that—look, the Yankees are obviously levels ahead of them right now, but I, I think it's always fun when both New York teams are doing well, at least for us. Yeah, I agree. I think it's great for baseball when— Two New York teams are, are doing really well. Uh, two rabid fan bases, two huge fan bases that actually have fans all over the country. And I think Mets fans might argue with you that the Mets are fun to watch. I think a lot of them have a lot of pain watching their team play. But um, well, this past the Mets season, have been I mean. in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Mets, I feel like they've been in this kind of nebulous area where they're they're floating between good and kind of mediocre for a while now. Um, but yeah, if they can. If they can get it together and get some guys healthy, too, because, you know, Yuena Cespedes missed pretty much all last year. Um, he's a huge bat if they can get him healthy. They can definitely make some noise, and especially in that division. Uh, like I mentioned, the Nationals, nobody saw them coming. Um, it's pretty much up for grabs. you got three or four teams that can compete in that division, and one of them could very well be the Mets. Hey, look, the, the close losses weren't fun to watch, but I'm just saying, you know, P. Alonso, that guy's, that guy's a stud. Absolutely. Yeah. And set the rookie record for home runs, led the major leagues in home runs last year. Um, when you think of the Mets, you don't think of great hitters. Usually, uh, you know, they had Mike Piazza for a bit. They had Daryl Strawberry back in the eighties. And uh, aside from that, you don't really think of great Met hitters. So Pete Alonso has a chance to kind of change that trend. And uh, within a few years, we could be talking about Pete Alonso as the greatest hitter in Mets history. So that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. And it was pretty cool to talk to you, Jim. Before we go, where can fans find you and your book online? So you can find my book online at Amazon. You can also find it at brick-and-mortar retailers like Barnes & Noble. It's called the New York Yankees All-Time All-Stars. You can also check out my blog. Since the book has been published, I had a a ton of extra content that I've been putting on my blog. It's called jimmysaysblog.blogspot.com. And that says S-E-Z for Jimmy Says. So, yeah, there's a ton of content there. And I'm actually about to put up some Hall of Fame posts because there's 11 former Yankees on the, the ballot this year. And I'm trying to cover them all via some posts. It's going to be a race to the finish, but I, I think I'll squeeze them all in there. So, Looking forward to that. Jim, always a pleasure. Thanks so much and enjoy this Hall of Fame season.